Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. All right, Zechariah, the 11th of the 12 minor prophets. So we're almost there. The second to last book in the Old Testament. It's the longest of the books, or one of the longest. It's like 14 chapters. Pray with me if you would. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We're excited to learn. We're excited to do more than learn. It's, it's more than data acquisition here. We, we are changed, and we encounter you in our study of your word. And you, Holy Spirit, are what makes that possible. Thank you for this. So we would ask now that you would help us, help us to understand, help us to apply what we understand, and transform us by this understanding so we bring you glory through our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So sometimes the most powerful thing that you can experience in life is encouragement. Sometimes the most powerful gift you can give is the gift of encouragement. And sometimes it doesn't take that much, you know, just a word, a word or two at the right time, rightly placed, just something to remind you, remind somebody of, of God, of what he's going to do, how he's going to come through, how he's got your back. So they're gone now in heaven, but I remember two friends who encouraged me a great deal over the years, Dick and Natalie Decay. And I don't know if you remember them, they were older Goodwill, if you will, a couple decades ago. They were leaders here. Uh, Dick was an elder at Goodwill. And they were Gideons. And so when they found out that I had a Gideon testimony, which meant that I had received a little green, light green Gideon Bible on the campus of the University of Connecticut, and it was there that I prayed that prayer in the back of that Bible and became a Christian. They found out about that, and I was a featured speaker at all kinds of chicken dinners <laughs> all over the tri-state region. <laughs> they had me booked. I think I went to other places. I think I went down to Washington one time, at Albany another time. So. And they were big into Tres Dias, which is Spanish for three days. It's a local retreat. And we've, we've had waves of people go to that, and some of the leadership of Trace Diaz is part of our, part of our uh, congregation. And they were really into that. And in 1992, they sponsored me and then Shannon to go to Trace Diaz. And they were always doing things like that, always encouraging me. They were, like many of you, looking for ways to encourage other people. And I remember one time in particular, or one way that they would encourage me, specifically Natalie. See, near the end of her life, she was in a wheelchair, and we were still next door in the older building, and there wasn't much room. There still isn't for a wheelchair there. And so she would park herself kind of in the back of the church, and I would have to pass her to go pronounce the benediction or stand in line to greet people, that kind of thing. But she would not let me pass her. She wanted to stop me if she saw me, and she wanted to give me a word of encouragement. And if I acted distracted or somehow ignored her, she wasn't having it, ever. 
<laughs> and if, you know, every once in a while, I would, I would act like I was giving her a gift. I was letting her encourage me because that's what she's into. And she would pick up on that right away, and that encouragement would last a while. She would go long on that encouragement, you know? <laughs> and just make sure they, they, they get through to me, you know? Because encouragement was serious business for them. And at the time, I didn't even think I needed it. And yet here I am, I can still remember it. It's, still, it, it's lodged itself into my, mem- my memory and my heart and, and serves its purpose still. Natalie went to be with the Lord in 2008, Dick in 2015. And between the two of them, I can still remember all the stories, or at least some of the stories. There were so many, and all the different ways that they would encourage. There'd always be something like, your future is so bright. Or, just you wait. You'll see. Hang in there. Do your work. Don't quit. Press on for Christ. Don't forget, the best is yet to come. That kind of thing. In fact, it reminds me of one of their favorite stories. It's an old-timey Christian classic, old school. It's the story of the fork in the casket. And I don't know if you know the story. I'm going to attempt to do it justice. Are you ready for it? Okay, here it is. In fact, it's got its own slide even. All right? So, a young woman had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, given about three months to live, and she met with her pastor to make arrangements for the funeral service, pick the songs, the hymns, the scriptures to be read, that kind of thing. We do this all the time, once in a while, depending on the, the mood of the event. I'll, I'll kid around with a person, you know, say, well, you're telling us all these things, but we might do something totally different. You're not going to know. You won't be there, you know. You'll be somewhere else, and you won't care. You'll be with him once in a while. So he's making these plans with her, and they're all done. He's about to leave, and she stops and says, one more thing. I've got one more request. And she asks that she would be buried with a fork in her right hand. And the pastor looks at her and says, this is a strange request. He says that with his eyes. She notices that. And then she explains. She says this. My grandfather once told me this story. My grandmother once told me this story. And from that time on, I've always tried to pass along its message to those I love and those who are in need of encouragement. In all my years of attending socials and dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming. Something like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. Something wonderful and with substance. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder what's with the fork. Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. The book of Zechariah is like this. If you're discouraged 
or you've ever been discouraged or think you might be discouraged, it's good to remember this book. It's got words for you. It's got all kinds of kaleidoscopic imagery, all designed to refire your spiritual imagination and get you focused on the good things that are yet to come in this life and the next. The ultimate of which, back then, was the same as it is today, Christ himself. He is the best that is yet to come, and because of him, the best is yet to come. This is Zechariah. His name means Yahweh remembers. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. So they lived at the same time. They were in the same context. They knew each other. Their messages were the same. Take heart, you know, re rebuild. God will come through. He'll keep his promises. Now, Zechariah was a much younger man than Haggai, and they both were in this area. That's what the Holy Land looked like at the time that they prophesied. The Persian Empire was the empire du jour, the empire of the day. And you could see how much real estate they claimed. So Haggai's older, his book is shorter, two chapters, and he's more reflective more into introspection, consider your ways, that kind of thing. Zechariah's younger, more into inspiration. Haggai focused on rebuilding the temple. Zechariah focused on rebuilding the people. And his grandfather, Zechariah's grandfather, named Edu, was a priest. So Zechariah was a prophet in a priestly lineage, had a foot in both worlds. And you can tell through his writing. His writing reminds you a little bit of Ezekiel, also a priest. Very ornate, descriptive visions, overwhelming visions, and he had them. In fact, there's several chapters, eight different visions, and he had them all in one night. All eight visions. And I read somewhere that you can trace the date specifically to February 15th, 519 B.C. Chuck Swindoll, speaking of old-timey, classic, right? Insight for living, Chuck Swindoll. He said this about Zechariah. Have you struggled with discouragement? Read Zechariah. While the book contains its share of judgments on the people of Judah and beyond, it overflows with hope in the future reign of the Lord over his people. It's easy to get caught up in the oftentimes depressing events of day-to-day -day life to lose our perspective, and to live as people without hope. The book of Zechariah serves as a correction for that tendency in our lives. We have a hope that is sure. How refreshing. Amen? Yeah. And why is it sure? Why is our hope sure? Well, the answer to this why question is a who. Zechariah is a book riddled with Jesus. I mentioned that before, but as far as I can tell, depending on who you ask, there are 60 70 maybe, different passages from Zechariah populating the New Testament in the Gospels all over the place, all the way to Revelation, where you can find many as well. Zechariah is a book of encouragement. And what's interesting about Zechariah, it's divided into two parts, one written in 520 B.C. and then one written 40 years later, 480 B.C. So we're going to look at both parts some call them first Zechariah, second Zechariah. Scholars tend to do that. But it all starts with this, a call to return to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. 
says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Always, you see that, all different forms of that, that formula, that calling formula. It, it's, it's active today. The Holy Spirit is calling you the same way that he was calling his people through Zechariah. He's calling us through Zechariah right now. Maybe you feel far from the Lord. For one reason or another, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Maybe there's things in the way. Let's consider those things. Let's obliterate those things. Return to the Lord. So here's a breakdown of the first half, first Zechariah, if you will. There's that call to repent. And then that's followed by the eight visions. Look how many chapters those eight visions take up one night. He had all those visions. And then we have a coronation scene where, of course, you see the direct description of Jesus. You see that there. And then we have fasting and feast for, for two chapters. So the eight visions are wild. They're awesome. Uh, they're worth picturing as you read them. Whenever you read them, keep in mind that they all are connected, obviously. He had them all in one night. And you'll notice as you read them that you'll see some key verses. Verses you might not have known, you know, where they were from. And yet they're verses we use as Christians that help us. They come from these visions. So here's, here's one right now from Zechariah 3, 2a. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuked you, O Satan. So you've heard that before. That's where it comes from. I love that. It's teaching us to show respect, not to Satan, but to God. Because God is in charge of all things. And God is going to handle Satan. And that's important. Satan represents all that is evil, all that is dark, all that would tempt to frighten you or make you anxious in your life. You, you, you experience Satan, you experience that, and you can address that. You know what? You're, you're trying to be my problem, but Jesus is your problem. You know, you heard that, that saying, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. His future is facing Jesus, facing judgment. And that we can be sure of. And that is encouraging. Here's another verse where we see something that we've heard often as Christians. From the fifth vision, Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. There it is. I can still hear the song. That was an old-timey worship song, right? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Here we're reminded of God's faithfulness, reminded of the fact that the things that might tempt to scare us, that might make us anxious, things of this world, God is bigger than all of them. He's bigger than all your problems. Any demonstration of power or might coming at you is doomed. God's got it. God's going to win. Jesus is greater. Right? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Amen to that. Yeah. By his spirit, he will be victorious. And it's by his spirit that we learn about his word. Again, you see the word Zerubbabel there, right? Again, you know, okay, let me place that where it needs to be placed. That's the line of the kings. You got Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, you know, the father. But that's lined up with David, lined up with Judah, the line of the kings, all pointing to Jesus, right? I should have let you say it. 
The right answer always ensures. All pointing to? Jesus. Yeah, you got it. That's right. Absolutely. Jesus is also the reference here from Isaiah 11, how he started today. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Again, pointing to Jesus, part of what we believe now through the, the mind and the pen, the tongue of the prophet. I love this. After the visions, you have that, that feast and fasting section you know, and, the, and the coronation, all of them rich with, with imagery that points to Jesus, but also that same formula restated. Here's, here's how it's restated here. Zechariah 7.13, As I called, they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. I have this uh, part of my memory scriptures from the old NIV 1984. When they called, when I called to them, they would not answer. So when I, when they called for me, when I called for them, they would not answer. So when they called me, I would not answer, says the Lord Almighty. It's just a reminder to me that it is a relationship and that we're, we're called to repent. And let me read to you a few verses before and after this verse. So you get the, the, the meaning of what it means to hear. What is it that he wants us to, to hear, like to, to abide by, to align with? This is Zechariah 7, 8 through 14. Just listen to this, the word of God. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not Oppress the widow, the fatherless, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great danger came from the Lord of hosts as I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So you get a feel there, a sense, a vision of God's heart for kindness, his desire for mercy, that's what he wants to see. And keep in mind that no one but a believer responds to verses like this. The Spirit is resident in you prior to you being caught off guard by a verse like this. I remember the first time I read Zechariah 7.13. You know, when I called to them, they would not answer. So when they called, I would not answer. And I, I was thinking about my life and thinking about the, my experience of God not responding to me and uh, me not feeling close to him. And I realized that he 
is, is calling me to himself to a life where I honor him through how I treat others, where I honor him through doing what he says in his word. And if his spirit is in me so that I even care what his word says, then the spirit is not satisfied until the work is finished and the change starts to be exhibited in my life. And that may be the description of the struggle you find yourself in as a believer. You're trying to live in this world, and most of us try to live in this world as worldlings. We, we try to live in this world the world's way. But you don't belong to the world, do you? Amen? Yes, that's, the only, that's, that's your, your only word you know. <laughs> Collectively. Amen? Yeah. So you don't belong to the world. You belong to him. And he calls you to himself. And the word provides you with the information you need to describe the transformation you are undergoing. You will be kind. God says so. Amen? Like, you might not feel very kind. Kindness is going to happen in your life because Jesus is happening in your life. Amen? Amen. And you're going to be a mercy person. I know. Some of you are like, oh, that's a big surprise to me. A surprise to the rest of us, too. It really is, right? Look around. You see some people like, yeah, mercy's not really his thing. Not really her thing. Yes, it is because it's Jesus' thing. So Jesus has got a hold of you, and he's going he's gonna to do this. That's what he does. You are not going to do it in your own strength, in your own way. You are not going to provide yourself as a kind, merciful person to God and see if he approves or not. We're done with that. Amen? Yeah, we can't save ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps. I demonstrated that once in church. And I, I literally demonstrated it. And, you know, you end up on your face. Because if you pull yourself up by your bootstrap, right? Can you picture? I'm not going to do it. I did it once, and it hurt. <laughs> and it was actually helpful for me because it solidified in my mind the uselessness of a phrase like that, especially when it comes to spiritual things. God is doing God's work in you, whom he calls his people. That's what's happening. If it's not happening, if you feel the disconnect, first of all, you feeling the disconnect is a sign that you are connected. I know. It's amazing. The minute you, you, when you feel yourself out of line, like, I'm just not, I'm not right with God. You're, God's already at work in you. He's already doing a thing. Don't fight it. Amen? Yeah, yeah don't, don't, no, you, don't need, you don't need to fight it. Say yes. Oh, make me Mr. Mercy. Here I come. The first thing, what's, what's John like? He's kind. It's going to happen. It is. <laughs> Not because of you or me, but because of him. Amen? Amen? Right. And that same thing can be said about each and every one of you. So there's a really neat passage at the end of the first part, the 522 B.C. part of Zechariah. And it describes the people of God as being the envy of the world. So think about this. This is post-exilic stuff. So this is after the exile. Uh, the the, the the land is wasted, overrun. The history is demolished. 
I mean, th these people are in deep need of, of reminders of what things were, not just to be encouraged. They're, they're discouraged and, and then some. And so they're just down in the depths of the pits of discouragement. And the prophet Zechariah is describing to them God's work in their midst. And he's saying, you are going to be the envy of the world. Listen to this. From Zechariah 8, 22 and 23. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Because the thing we want most in life, whether we know it or not, is the presence of God. That's how heaven is described to us. Heaven's where I am says God, you will be with me. The reason our sins had to be paid for is because we couldn't take our sins with us to be in the presence of God because there can be no sin there. And the, we were created to be satisfied, to be happy in his presence. That's why it means so much to him when he says at the end of the gospel, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to be with you. And so we seek all these things in life to be satisfied. We, we, we seek status, acquisition of material things, what have you. The world is chasing itself, chasing its tail to get something. And oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, all the time, if they actually get everything they want, it can be a devastating experience. And I don't know if any of you have had a moment like that in life where you have all the money you want, all the stature, all the power, all the influence, whatever it is, you have it. You got it. The day went your way completely. Yet without God, there can be no more disappointing experience than that. I remember growing up in Connecticut, and, and people would get the money they wanted and the success they wanted. They'd have the car they dreamed of, and the boat, oh, the boats, so many boats. They'd have the boat that they wanted, yeah. They'd have all that and be more miserable than ever, divorce rates skyrocketing, kids severing from the families as soon as they could or sooner than that. The presence of God is what satisfies. I want things too, and I... And blinded by my desire for things, for my circumstances to be what I want them to be. But I'm reminded by this scripture that the only thing worth having is the presence of God in my life. And that's the thing I take with me past this life. That's the thing that I get to stay with, that I get to keep forever because of what Jesus did for me. The same can be said of you who believe. Yes, amen and amen. Great stuff. So with, with the presence of God, the people of God have this, this ultimate encouragement. That's encouragement. We, we get discouraged sometimes by the wrong things, and we fail to be encouraged by the right things. Be encouraged by the presence of God in your life. That's the ultimate encouragement. So 
now the king returns in the second half of the book. This is the real return of the king. And there's these two oracles, chapters 9 through 11 and chapters 12 through 14. And spend the time to read. The best way, if you've just, you're overwhelmed by Bible reading and you, you want to get to know the whole thing, read it through in a year. If that seems like too much, read it through in two years. There are plans for both. And you can dig in, but you want to know what you're looking at. And here you're looking at the return of the king. And specifically, it's about Jesus. I mean, here's a verse that we refer to every Palm Sunday directly. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Quoted in the Gospels, this is directly about one man who lived a short time to become the king of kings for all time, Jesus Christ. And the prophet, in these last chapters, these two oracles, it's like he has videos, like video coverage of what's going to happen 500 years later with Jesus. Look at this verse, Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages as 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. What? That gives you chills, right? Like, whoa. Check this one out. In Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay. Jesus quotes Zechariah to explain what's happening when he gets arrested. This is Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. He quoted that directly as he was being arrested. So there's a verse in Acts that I've worked to memorize, and again, in the old version. Here it is. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And Zechariah, maybe more so. Of course, they're all there standing with Zechariah, testifying to Christ, to faith in him. That's where hope is born. That's your fountain of encouragement, not just for eternity, not just for later, next life, about that, yes, too, but we are not disconnected from that. The encouragement exists today. It's yours today to be accessed by you today, experienced by you today. The encouragement that is Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've been through, be encouraged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe in the King who came and conquered our real enemies. That's part of the forgiveness of sins spoken of here, what King Jesus did for us on the cross. 
It's a reminder, isn't it? It's actually a meal, a reminder to keep your fork. The best is yet to come. And so this takes us to the communion table. It's something I don't need to make much of it and makes much of itself given to us by Christ to remember what he's done. That's exactly what he says. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep me in mind. That's not religious duty. It could be that. But it's so much more than that. It's not that really at all, I don't think. To remember him is to take a deep breath, to come back to life, to have your hope restored, to, to put into perspective all these things that have been blindsiding you, discouraging you, tearing at you. Remember me. Father, we want to remember you. We look back centuries before you were born and see precise descriptions of exactly what you went through and what you did and why it matters and who you were, are, and always will be, the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you yourself went to the cross. Not someone else, not someone in your stead. You went in our stead. You went in our place. You went there. You did what you said you would do, what all the prophets said you would do. You overcame. You won. You seized the victory for all time. Thank you for this. There are things that weigh us down. There are things that distract us. There are things that occupy far too much room in our thinking, in our consciousness. As we together participate in what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, we want to dispense with these things that are interfering with you in our minds and hearts. We confess sins. In Hebrews 12, you talk about the, the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. And so whatever those things are that may or may not be sin, but they hinder nonetheless, whatever it is, whatever would get in the way of us experiencing you, of us experiencing the fullness of the encouragement you have for us, we drop now. We let go of now that we may hold onto you and you alone. Lord, as the men pass these elements for us to receive, let us take the time. Let us survey our own consciences, our own souls and hearts and spirits. We give this gift to one another. We support each other in this. It's part of what you do for us. We have a phrase, we, we come clean with you. This is that time. The whole gospel is summarized by this sacrament. And we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we learn the basics of the Christian life just in those two sacraments. We enter, we begin 
We're, we're, we're marked, we're set aside, initiated in our walk with you. And then it's maintained regularly as we come to this table, as we remember, as we remember to remember, as we fix our eyes once again on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for what you've done that is so much more than encouragement through your death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the, the episodes in your life that you chose to reveal to your prophets. They all point to the price you paid, a price paid for you in 30 pieces of silver. Your proclamation as king that is hard not to see as mockery. It was not. And yet at the time, many hoped it would be meant it to be. Your fulfillment of all prophecy, Lord, comes to this point. So set apart these elements for holy purpose, that they be to our faith, your body broken, your blood shed, to pay the full price for our sins. In your name, Jesus, we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.